I invite you now to take out your Bibles and you can turn to John chapter 11. John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the blessing of your spirit. We thank you for the blessing of your gospel. Lord, now, as your word is opened and your gospel proclaimed, we pray that you would send your spirit to do what only you can, to open up eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remove any distractions. Lord, that you would give us undivided hearts. Lord, that we would be united to fear your name, that our hearts and minds would be devoted to you to glorify you to focus right now lord help us to receive your word for what it is the word of god and not the word of man Uh, lord may this be blessed unto the edification of your people and the conversion of sinners in jesus name we pray amen so we pick up again with our series in john and we come now to the beginning of the last and greatest miracle of jesus's ministry uh, not counting his own resurrection Uh, As Pastor Brian observed last Sunday, chapter 10 recorded for us the final debate in John between Jesus and the Jews, and chapter 11 now marks a turning point. As we've seen, the public ministry of Jesus is beginning to draw to a close. Uh, In this gospel account, Jesus' ministry is bookended by references to John the Baptist. I found this interesting. So it begins with John testifying to Christ, right, that Jesus is the one uh, whom God has prophesied, that Jesus is the one whose sandals, John says, he is not worthy to untie. 
And then we see chapter 10 ending with the other bookmark, the other parenthesis, a concluding statement from many who believed, another reference to John, where they said, everything John said about this man was true. Uh, we see as well that John's gospel has a fairly unique structure to it, uh, using the annual feasts as markers, right? So the number of Passover feasts, the number of times that they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, using these feasts as markers for the passage of time. Up until this point in John, we have covered nearly three years of ministry, uh, but you may have noticed we are only about halfway through John. Uh, and so from chapter 11 onward, the rest of John's gospel will zoom way in and will focus on the final two weeks of Jesus's life. And so we have chapters 11 and 12 functioning as something of a transition. Uh, so if you still have your Bibles open to chapter 11, let's read together from verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now there are two Bethanies that are referenced in John's Gospel. Uh, the first one is mentioned in John 1, verse 28, and that is Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the second Bethany, the one mentioned here, is the Bethany that is the village of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this was very close to Jerusalem. Um, now, it's interesting, Jesus was actually probably in the one Bethany when he is called to go to the other. Uh, if you look at the end of John 10, Jesus retreated to the place where John was baptizing at the first um, not sure if there's significance in that, but I found it interesting nonetheless. Um, and the next interesting thing to notice is that John mentions that this Mary was the same Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And what's really peculiar about that is that John has not told us that story yet. Uh, that's, that will come uh, later in chapter 12, as, as we'll see. Um, and so this uh, leads many to assume that this was a story that was well known among the people who would have been reading John's gospel uh, by the time of his writing. But even if that had not been the case, uh, what we would have then is John simply doing what many great authors do, uh, which is foreshadowing, uh, introducing something about a character that will get explained in greater detail later. Um, and in any case, John seems determined to show us something that is very important to this story, and that is this. Jesus loved this family, right? So these are not strangers, nor are they mere acquaintances. And I think John seems very determined, as he does multiple times throughout this passage, to show that Jesus really loved this family, and this family really loved him. And Jesus' love for this family will be quite significant as we progress through this narrative. And so I don't think it's by accident that John included this detail about this amazing display of love on the part of Mary. So let's continue on here with verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now this section and this verse give us an insight into the life of Christ that we don't see in many other places. And that is that Jesus had very strong friendships. Uh, even outside of his band of disciples. Lazarus is described as he whom the Lord loves. In verse 5, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved this family, had a deep affection 
for these three. And that will be very, very significant as the story unfolds. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now here we're met with a potential problem. For as we know, if we've heard the story, which most of us have, this illness would, would, will lead to Lazarus' death. Jesus knew this very well, so we ask, what then did he mean when he said, this illness will not lead, will not end in death? Now, spoiler warning to any of you who have not read this story before. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, the story is uh, nearly 2,000 years old. I don't feel too bad in spoiling it for you. You've had your chance to read it. Uh, But that is where we are going. Lazarus will be raised from the dead. So truly, what Jesus says is accurate. This illness Lazarus currently has will not end in death. That will not be the final result of this illness. Rather, Jesus says this sickness is for the glory of God. Specifically, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We have a very similar, a bit of an echo here of what Jesus says about the man born blind. If you remember, Jesus was asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but rather, this man was blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Same thing here. This illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. So in God's sovereign providence, in God's sovereign providence, those are big words, but that is God's governance of all things, his guiding of uh, the world that he made, his preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. In God's sovereign providence, Jesus says, this illness has a purpose, and it is not to end in death. For Lazarus. That's not why he's sick right now. That is not the end of his life on earth. Rather, this illness that Lazarus is experiencing, Jesus says, is for God's glory. God's purpose in this is for himself to be glorified, and the way he's going to be glorified will be through his son being glorified for his resurrection power. That's where we're going. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now there is an interesting statement, an interesting contrast. It almost sounds contradictory, right? That's not what you're expecting to hear. You'd actually hear to Expect to hear the opposite, right? Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he heard he was ill, he rushed there to heal him, right? He went immediately to go and heal him. That's what you expect to hear after the statement about the love Jesus has for them. But that's not what it says. It says Jesus loved them so when he heard Lazarus was ill. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. As D.A. Carson puts it, the two-day delay was motivated by 
his love for them. His love motivated the delay. We get that from the word so. That is, that is there in the Greek. It is so or therefore. He loved them, therefore he stayed two days longer when he heard it. So Jesus had a particular purpose in mind, and it was a good purpose, and it was motivated by love for them and for the glory of God. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and feel the weight of this. This is a heavy trial being placed upon this family. Right? Not only the suffering and eventual death of Lazarus himself, right? You think of his experience of this, right? He doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. All that he may know is that they sent for him and he didn't come. The suffering and death of Lazarus, the anxiety, fear, uh, the sadness and grief settling in on them as they watched him deteriorate, followed by the horrible, heart-wrenching grief of losing a family member, which they felt fully and felt for a number of days. Notice Jesus doesn't show up at the funeral and fix everything within the first moments after Lazarus has died. But we see Jesus was intentional. He deliberately stayed where he was. Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, so when he heard, he stayed two more days. And so here's what John makes sure we catch. This delay on the part of Christ, which truly did lead to more pain, a greater trial, this delay did not in any way undermine, undercut, or disprove Christ's love for this family. In fact, we see just the opposite. Jesus is deliberate about what he does here, and all of his actions are driven by his love for them. So as we encounter suffering in our lives, if God seems to delay in answering our prayers, perhaps even bringing us through the valley of the shadow of death, we are taught by this story that this should in no way cause us to doubt God's love for his children. In fact, for us, just as for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we are taught that everything that happens to us is for a good purpose if we are in Christ. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do not let your trials, your grief, or your pain cause you to doubt God's love for you. Rather, if you are in Christ, then remember that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
For if you are in Christ, God has already definitively proven his love for you in sending Christ to purchase your salvation. And we see here, when God in his providence brings us through trials, as he did with his family, that does not prove that he doesn't love us. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? You know, you may remember in chapter 10, we saw last Lord's Day, the Jews had been ready to stone Jesus in the street the last time he'd been to Judea, uh, been to the region of Jerusalem. So the disciples are understandably wary about returning there. Hey, we, we just got out of there. There is way too much heat, and now you want to go right back in again? Right, they're, they're worried for Jesus. They're probably worried also for themselves. Going back to Judea, going back to this region, could, and ultimately would, result in Christ's death, and possibly theirs as well. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Jesus draws from the general wisdom that as long as it's daytime, it's safe to walk. So you can see where you're going, right? The sun, the light of the world, light of this world, uh, lights up your path so that you will not stumble. Right. As long as it's daytime, as long as we are within that 12-hour period, Jesus says it is safe for us to walk. It is safe for us to continue working. At night, it's a bit of a different story. Right? Then you may stumble. And so as it relates to their question, I think Jesus is making a similar point here to what he said in John chapter 9, uh, verses 4 and 5, where he said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus asks, are there not 12 hours in the day? His point is that although it may be getting late in the day, it is still day. And so they must continue doing the work assigned to them, and it will be safe for as long as that daylight period continues. And as D.A. Carson comments, the daylight period of his ministry may be far advanced, right? We may be coming to the end, but it is wrong to quit before the 12 hours have been filled up. Close quote. So Jesus is assuring them that as long as it is still the time appointed for his ministry, it is safe for them to go and to work. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. <clears throat> so 
So after an initial misunderstanding, Jesus tells his disciples clearly, Lazarus is not merely sleeping and recovering, but Lazarus has died. And Jesus is going to awaken him from the sleep of death. And then notice what he says. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. We see again that Jesus had a very particular purpose in mind. For had Jesus been there, had he healed Lazarus to prevent his death, another miraculous healing would no doubt still strengthen the faith of the disciples. But not nearly as much as what Jesus had planned. What Jesus intends to do here is to perform a greater miracle than simply just another healing. He is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And there may be another element here to why Jesus delayed for as long as he did. Uh, next week we'll see from verse 17 that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead, had been in the tomb for four days. Now there is some evidence of a belief within Jewish writings uh, just a little after the time of Jesus that the soul of a deceased person would hang around the body for the first three days after death. So if that belief was present at the time of Christ, now I'm not saying that was a biblical view, but rather this was possibly the view of the Jews at the time. Uh, so if that belief was present already at the time of Christ, that may help to explain why Jesus thought it important to wait as long as he did. For it would be received as a greater miracle to bring back to life a man after that time had expired after that time period. Um, so that may have been what Jesus was doing there, waiting for everybody to believe that he is fully and completely dead before he is raised. Uh, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now Thomas, uh, one of the twelve, may have heard him referred uh, to as Doubting Thomas for the episode we'll see in John chapter 20. Uh, at this point here, John, uh, Thomas shows great character, right? great strength of character. Right, to back up again, we can understand the hesitancy of the disciples to go back to Judea. Right? They knew about the hatred of the Jews, they have witnessed the Jews casting people out from the synagogues. They have witnessed angry crowds picking up stones to kill Jesus. They have seen the mobs trying to kill him multiple times. And so they know that not only Christ's life, but their lives too are at risk if they would return to Judea. Now, I haven't been in too many situations where I was genuinely afraid for my life, right, that somebody might take it. Uh, but I do remember the intimidation of passing through military checkpoints in Zambia, uh, guarded by soldiers with fully automatic rifles, uh, feeling as if that situation was somewhat unpredictable. Now, how much worse yet to approach a checkpoint like that if you already knew these people wanted you dead? All right. To go back to Judea for the disciples would feel like that. <laughs> It would feel like marching into the lion's den. We know there are people who want you dead. 
And so this is a remarkable statement of courage, love, and loyalty on the part of Thomas. His master is determined to go to Judea despite the peril. And Thomas, at this point anyway, is willing to go with him even to death. While he may have misunderstood the assurance Jesus had just given in verses 9 and 10, while he may have also misunderstood the nature of Jesus' mission to come as the Savior, to die and rise again, nevertheless, at this point, Thomas displays admirable courage. And so if Thomas, with, with these misunderstandings and misapprehensions, was willing to follow his master into the lion's den, then how much more should we be willing to do the same? We who live on this side of the cross, we who know that the tomb remains empty because Christ has risen, ascended, and is reigning at the right hand of the Father, where he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. We who live on this side of Pentecost, this side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through whom we receive the grace needed for any circumstance. Right? That spirit who is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Right? In many ways, we are in a better situation now than Thomas was then. Let us display that same courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but as the great theologian John Wayne once put it, courage is being scared out of your mind and saddling up anyway. Right? It is the refusal to give in to fear, the refusal to let fear dictate your actions, decide what you will do, to give fear the driver's seat. Right? If you never ever had any fear at all, courage would not be called upon. But instead, it is when we are afraid that courage is counted on the most. May we be men of courage. May we be ready to lay down our lives, to go and to die with Christ. For in a very real way, this is the call on the Christian life. Thomas spoke better than he knew, for the Christian life itself can be described as choosing daily to die with Christ. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now to pick up your cross means to join Christ in the death march. Right? For Christ to carry his cross, quite literally, meant carrying the instrument of his execution to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. So we are to be willing to follow in his footsteps. Now, obviously, there's only one Savior. And so we see this, then, as a metaphor. To daily take up your cross is to be willing to die to self every day. To choose daily to follow Christ wherever he would lead. To be consistently willing to surrender your life, your preferences, your desires, in service of Christ and his kingdom. So for us on a daily basis, in the small things, this means consistently choosing to do what you know would please God. Every single day is full of countless opportunities to either gratify yourself, right, to choose selfishly, 
or to die to yourself and follow in the ways of Christ. To live self-sacrificially, to pour out your life for God and his kingdom. Let us also go that we may die with him. For in the wisdom of God, in what seems to be the upside-down logic of the kingdom of God, the next verse from Luke 9, Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 24. God never asks of us anything that will not ultimately be shown to be serving our good. We are called to die to self, to live for him, to pour out our lives for others. And what we find when we do is that there is more joy in generosity than there is in selfishness. We are called to love even our enemies, forgiving those who wrong us, praying for those who persecute us. And when we do, we find that there is freedom from bitterness from soul-rotting envy. God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, seeking his glory in all things. And what we find is that when we seek this, we discover what we were made for. We find that there is no substitute that can satisfy our hearts as God can. As Augustine once said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And so dying to self is the way to truly live, both now and to eternity. God never asks anything of us that will not ultimately be shown to be serving our good. And this includes enduring the sometimes devastatingly difficult providences he has appointed for us. As we saw with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, It was the love of Christ that motivated him to do things the way that he did. To put it provocatively, it was love that motivated Jesus to let Lazarus die. Remember again that connection between verses 5 and 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so When he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer. John Piper puts it this way. John intends, and Jesus intends, for everyone seeing this to ask, how is that love? John has gone out of his way to set this up. Jesus loves them. He loves them. Therefore, he does not heal him, but lets him die. Why is this love? Well, the answer was given first in verse 4 and repeated in verse 15. The purpose of the illness, the purpose of Lazarus' death, the purpose of all of it was the glory of God through his Son. This is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This illness will be shown to have been for the glory of God and his Son. 
This illness and the death of Lazarus will put the glory of God on display. It will be used as a demonstration of the glory of Christ. Therefore, verse 6, love lets him die. Love lets him die because his death will help them see in more ways than they know the glory of God. Piper continues. So what is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most, and what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When someone is willing to die, or let your brother die, to give you and your brother that, he loves you. Close quote. Now just let us see that from the text. The love of Jesus for his friends was the reason he did not go right away to heal Lazarus. Again, we get that from the word so in verse 6, therefore. So also in verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. Right? Greek is kairu. I rejoice. I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus was motivated by love to let Lazarus die because he had a greater purpose in mind, one that would serve the best interests, not only of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but also his disciples and every single person down to this present day who has read or heard this story. The point of the illness was not death. It was the glory of God. God would be glorified through this, and they would see the glory of God in Christ in a way that they would not have seen any other way. And this would strengthen their faith, right? For your sake, I rejoice. So God in his sovereign providence had a good purpose, motivated by love, for bringing his beloved children through these tremendous trials. And this is just as true for all of God's children. Jesus said in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And if you are in Christ, then this is true for everything you go through as well. Your illness will not ultimately end in death. It is for the glory of God. Your trial does not ultimately end in death. It is for the glory of God. And yes, even your death does not ultimately end in death. It is for the glory of God and your good. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 22. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and catch this, or the world, or life, or death, 
or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The world, all of life, the present, the future, death itself are yours. They are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And in his great love, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You are in God's hand and no one can snatch you out. And so if you go through trials, which you will, labor to receive them from the hand of God as something intended for your good. James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, difficulties, sorrows, life, death, present, future, are yours in Christ. Received rightly, they are God's servants for your good. And that is why we are called to count it as joy when we face them. If you respond the right way, in faith, relying on God, trials can produce something in you. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I have I have learned to bless the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Trials can produce something in you. James says they can produce steadfastness, which when it has had its full effect, makes you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul says in Romans 5 that trials and sufferings produce endurance, character, and hope that will not be put to shame. All things are yours in Christ. They are Christ's servants. So let us not begrudge his providence. Let us trust that if Christ sees fit to delay coming to help as we've asked, if he sees fit to let us endure this trial, this agonizing trial, then let us trust that Christ is doing so out of love. This trial does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. The world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Death itself is a servant of Christ. As the story of Lazarus will display, Christ has mastery over death. Our Lord is not some limited deity doing his best and working his hardest, but constrained by outside forces. All things serve him. The devil is on a leash. The demons have been disarmed, put to open shame, triumphed over by Christ, Colossians 2.15. Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. He himself died, not for what he had done, or for the sins of his people. And he rose again, and we are promised forgiveness and eternal life through him. And so if you are a Christian, and if you are in Christ, then the story of Lazarus becomes a microcosm of your life. 
For if you read this story and you think that there's a happy ending because Lazarus gets raised in the end, well, firstly, you're right. And secondly, you must see that God is telling the same story with you. You too will die. But the illness or the accident that takes you also will not end in death. Your death will not end in death if you be in Christ. While death is an enemy to be destroyed, in a very real way, death is also a servant of Christ. Christ has removed the sting of death. And so for the Christian, death is the immediate gateway to the presence of God. And death itself will one day be done away with. For you will be raised just as Christ was raised. So take heart. Death has lost its sting. Life, death, the present, the future, to eternity. All things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. We may not see in this life why Christ delays right, when we ask for help. But we have been given the end of the story. It does not end in death. It ends in glory. In this, we find our courage. Christ's victory is so comprehensive that all things are yours through him. And so we fear God and not man. We fear God and not death. May we lay down our lives, ready always, literally and metaphorically, to go and to die with Christ. Amen.